Well, good morning. My name is Jason, one of the pastors here at Community Church, and I'm really glad that each and every one of you is here wherever you are in your spiritual journey. I was thinking about that question that Matt asked about being lost. Where are my directionally challenged people? Anybody ever driven around 465 all the way around saying eventually you'll get there? All right, that's, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. Thank God for all the GPSs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Kim and I were hiking in Morgan Monroe uh, State Forest uh, on Friday doing a 10-mile hike, which was great and so much fun. And I'm like, if it weren't for the All Trails app, I'd have been in big trouble and I might still be there today. But when we think about being lost, being without direction, there's a spiritual lostness. There's a condition of not knowing, not being able to see what is ahead. And not being able to remember where you've gone before. This morning we're going to start a new series. We're going to be in the book of Judges, uh, which is probably some unfamiliar territory for many of you this morning. It is a place of darkness. It is a place of lostness. And our question is, you know, how do we move forward? How do we have faith in the darkness? How do we learn to follow the light in the darkness? Well, one of the questions I believe is critical for us. Whenever you feel like, what is my next step? What is the direction, God, that you want me to take? The late, great Dallas Willard, great Bible teacher, philosopher, very simple response to that, just do the next right thing. Just do the next right thing. And I would add this word in there, and I would ask you this question, what is the next hard right thing for you to do? Not just the easy right, but what is the next hard right thing for you to do? What is that for you? That's really the, the challenge, not just of today, but of the next four weeks. What is the next hard right thing for you to do? Maybe for some of you, it's a, it's a tough decision that you've been putting off and it's time to make. Maybe for others, there's a critical conversation that you know you need to have. For others, maybe there's someone to forgive. Maybe if we're really honest with ourselves, there's a sin pattern that we need to break. There's a temptation to overcome. Maybe for others, there's a courageous action step to take. There's a hurting person to help. But it's hard. If it weren't hard, we'd have probably already taken the step. So what is it that's keeping you from that? Well, in the next four weeks, we're going to look into the book of Judges, and it's going to be a challenge for our obedience. Because I believe the next, our next growth step is found in the direction of the next hard right thing. 
So I want you to have that in mind as we start today and as we get into the next three weeks. This year we've been focusing on the theme of faith stories. We began with Hebrews 11 and there's kind of this faith hall of fame and then we've gone back and we've looked at some of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then we've looked at Moses and, uh, you know, how do these Old Testament characters with all their flaws give us a mirror to ourselves and then ultimately point us to Jesus? Well, in the book of Judges, Judges gives us some unique insight. It gives us some unique insight into the challenge of obedience in a culture of compromise. There's a clear challenge for obedience in a culture of compromise that in many ways defines our time. So over the next four weeks, we're going to look at two judges. There's a bunch of them. We're going to look today a little bit at, we're going to introduce her and, and, and think a little bit about the big picture of judges. And then uh, next week, we'll, we'll follow up with uh, the, the last part of the text about her, and then we're going to take two weeks and we're going to look at the life of Gideon. And both of these examples are going to help us discover some things about ourselves. And as a whole, Judges shines a light on the tension between God's unconditional love for his people. How many of you like unconditional love? Yes and the uncompromising call for obedience. That one's a little tougher. So how do we lean into this tension? I want to take you first of all to uh, Judges chapter 2. If you're newer to the Bible, you probably haven't spent much time in in Judges. If uh, you've been with the Bible a long time, there might be some distant memories of Judges. But when we look at the Bible, the first five books, the, 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 the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, those classic uh, foundational stories, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five, and then we're going to get into Joshua, the conquest, capturing of the promised land, a lot of violent stuff, and then we're going to get into this period of the judges. Let me take you to 2.1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars, yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? This is the tension in Judges. This is the tension in the whole Old Testament. God's unfailing love, his covenant, his promise, and the disobedience of God's people. So how do you live in this tension? How do we live in this tension even today? I believe we tend to do one of two things. We tend to to lean into one side. Sometimes we complacently give in to sin. After all, 
I'm a sinner saved by grace. God has saved me and he will continue to forgive me. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says, hey, why sh-? he talks about God's grace and forgiveness. And in chapter 6, he says, why shouldn't we go on sinning so that grace may increase? There's some twisted logic there. But at some level, deep down, if we're really honest, there can be a complacency towards sin, guilty, that says, God will always forgive me. Therefore, I can be lighthearted. I can be flippant about that. The other side is to live in guilt and shame and fear because I can never measure up. I can never measure up. I can never be good enough. Yeah, 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 I get it. I, I get the gospel. I get grace. But, but deep down, can God really forgive? Can I, can I actually live up to that? I believe there's a tension there. It's exposed in the book of Judges, and I believe it's relevant for us today. So how do we step forward into this tension? And how do we take that next hard, right step of obedience? That's our task this morning. A little bit about judges. Let me give you a little bit of background to help us in that. This occurs between the time of Moses and, and, and Joshua, who would go into the promised land, and the kings. So we're roughly 1200 to 1020 BC. We're somewhere in that time vicinity. It's a time of spiritual pluralism. In other words, there's, there's God, there's Yahweh, and there's the law, and then there's all these other gods, these, these Canaanite gods. So there's, there's really a mixture of faith. There's a time of half-hearted belief. It's a time of compromise. It's looking to God or following the culture of the time. And there's a familiar refrain, a constant refrain in that it says, they did what was right in their own eyes. This has nothing to do with us today in our culture. I, I mean, it, just let's work with me. Let's make a stretch here to connect the dots between this time in our time. There is a downward spiral of sin that we'll see. God would appoint a judge, things would be better, and then it would spiral. And the judges seem to get progressively worse. Judges is a violent book. Some of you may want to cover your ears. Some of you may say, I like I like violent action. I like war stories. Starts with a series of relatively obedient judges. Othniel, the great warrior. Ehud, the left-handed assassin who takes out the evil Moabite king. Shamgar, who strikes down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. You might have an ox goad at home. It's just a big stick. There are bright spots early on, but then there's a decline, and it ends, ends with the worst 
judge of them all, Samson. So we're going to see this cycle of sin. And I believe that even though we're separated by 3,000 years, and this is a brutally violent book, it is a story for our times. Even in a time when artificial intelligence and all the technological advance, and what could we possibly learn from something this old? But as technology advances, as all these things change, the human heart has not. Nor has our need for a rescuer and a savior. Warning label on judges. I want to remind you that the Bible is for us, but not written directly to us. We need to do some interpretive work here. What the Bible describes, it does not always prescribe. In other words, what we see, the stories, what is, is not necessarily what ought to be. What does not change, though, is the character of God, and that's what we want to continue to uncover. We're going to read Judges as a mirror that reveals some of the darkness in our own souls. It is not a, necessarily a model to follow, nor a modern-day mandate for holy war. We've got to be careful with this. It's a mirror that reveals a need for a light, not a new political leader, but a savior. I want to begin our look at the story with Joshua 23, the end of Joshua. Again, Joshua, Moses was not allowed to go into the promised land. It is Joshua who will go and lead the people. He says this at the, at the end of Joshua. He says, be Be very strong, be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord as you have until now. So this is is the challenge of obedience that is given to the people. Hold fast. Hang on. Judges chapter 1 verse 19 has this description. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. This was the superior military technology of the time, if you had chariots, you were going to win. You had the upper hand. The numbers may not have mattered as much as the technology of war. So as we look into these stories, sometimes it's, I mean, do you ever look at the Bible and say, well, if I were there, I would have done so much better. I would have acted so much differently. I would have had such great courage. Put a bunch of chariots coming at you, and let's see how we would respond. I believe there's a principle here that says there's, there's opposition that we can see. 
that's real and concrete, that's in conflict sometimes with the power of God that we cannot yet see. There's opposition that we can see. There's the power of God that we may not yet see. Take you to Joshua 2, verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered up to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew neither the Lord nor what, nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Again, there's this tension. God will not abandon them, but at the same time, there is a requirement of obedience. Now, here's where the judges fit in. This will help us with judges. 2.16, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices in stubborn ways. So it's into this. Now we're talking a level of evil and corruption. Sometimes we think in our own day we've got the corner on that market. The history of the world says that there's been a lot of evil, there's been a lot of corruption. And into this context, we're talking with the Canaanites, a level of moral depravity, child sacrifice. This is a rough place and a rough, dark time to live. Into this, we're going to meet our first judge in our series, Deborah. Let me take you to Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. I'm going to read through this and make a few comments, but we'll go through it pretty, pretty quickly. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now that Ehud was dead, so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth Hagoim, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried to the Lord for help. We'll get into this a little bit more next week, but this is a cruel, cruel leader. And again, 900 chariots. This is a big deal. This is cutting-edge technology. This is at the top. You're not going to want to do battle. 
Again, the opposition that you can see, the power of God that you cannot yet see. Part of the problem is the Israelites is they've forgotten what God has already done. Now Deborah, verse 4, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. We'll talk a little bit about Deborah this week. We'll get into some more about her next week. Ach, Noam from Go take with you 10,000 men of Nephtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Who is in charge here? God is in charge. God's saying, I will do this. Deborah is a prophet. She is the mouthpiece of God. She is the judge. She is a leader. In many ways, as, we've, as the judges that have already uh, gone before her were very much military, think of like a tribal chieftain. Deborah is unique in her leadership style. Verse 8, Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now, some look at Barak and say he lacked faith. Others just said he was really wise to have Deborah with him. Certainly, I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went with him. If you remember Jacob or Israel and the, and, and the 12 sons and the tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali are two of the, the sons who are now a people group who are joining in the battle. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Habab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinami, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harash Hagoim to the Kishon River all his men in his 900 chariots fitted with iron. If you're Sisera, how are you approaching the battle? You are extremely confident. You've got technology on your side. This should be a route. This should be a piece of cake for you. You are not scared of these little foot soldiers because you have chariots. He had the better military technology, could have easily cut through Barak's 10,000 men. Then Deborah said to Barak, go, go. This is the, the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots. An army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. 
We see Deborah and her prompt response of faith. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagoim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Eber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jab and king of Azor in the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep. Exhausted, she drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. This is a violent story. In a patriarchal culture, what a humiliating way to die. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. Good night. What are we going to do with this story? What do we do with this violent story? A lot of questions. A lot we could say about the violence. A lot we could say about Deborah. Next week we'll get into this a little bit more. But we want to see that Deborah stands out among the judges. As Tim Keller says, she leads with wisdom and character rather than might. She was a judge who led beyond the battlefield. Now, as great as Deborah was, as great as that example is, and really does as a bright light, Deborah will die. And this cycle of sin and darkness will spiral again. So as we look at this example of Deborah, we see that the light of her wisdom is going to point us to the need for a greater light. Her example is going to point us to the vision of a godly king ruling in God's kingdom. In this sense, the light of Deborah's faith and wisdom points us to the brighter light of Jesus and his kingdom. I want to take a look at that. I want you to take a right in your Bible. Go to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 9, verse 6. Is this, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne 
and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. If we take another right, we look to the Gospel of Luke. Luke 1.32. Words to Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. I want you to see that light. I want you to see the greater light of Jesus in the darkness of our times. I want you to go back to your, that question I asked you. What is the next hard right thing for you to do? What is that for you? If Jesus is the king, if he's really on the throne, if he's on the throne of your heart, if he's on my heart, we will do the next hard right thing. It's that simple and that hard. Jesus says this in John 14, 15, if you love me, Keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Friends, the tension of judges, this unconditional, conditional highlights and is resolved in Jesus and his gospel. That tension is resolved through Jesus. Let me spell it out to you this way. When you think of the word gospel, what is gospel? It's good news. You know, and, and, you know back in Jesus' day, you know, a gospel was a declaration a victory, of good news. It was a military victory. The gospel that this general had defeated so-and-so. When we think of the gospel, gospel is the good news that Jesus has defeated, the power of sin and death, and rescues all who believe in him. What does that mean practically for us? A couple things. First of all, that God's love for me, for you, for us, truly is unconditional. His love for me is not dependent upon my obedience. I don't have to hit a certain mark on the obedience scale and now you're in. Or I've fallen below it and now you're out. Yet his love, his love for me, his love for you, gives us the motivation and the resources to obey. He gives us a new reason to love, a new reason to trust, and he has given us his Holy Spirit. So let me take you back to that next hard right thing for you, and I want to quickly give you a few steps, a few steps to take. They'll be on your prayer card. You can just listen. But the first one is this. 
Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the good news. Delight in what God has done for you. And as we do that, that will help us see and identify the roadblocks and idols in our life. And that will give us the humility to ask God for help and to get others involved. So this is a pattern I want to introduce to you today. We're going to come back to it. But I don't want you to walk out of here this morning without saying, this is the next hard right thing for me to do. And I'm going to start by preaching the gospel to myself. I want to invite you now, as you consider that, to prepare your heart and your mind to come to the communion table. Because you see, it's at the cross where Jesus paid the price that he resolves that tension. Is God light on sin? Absolutely not. Jesus paid the price. When we receive the bread and the cup, that's what we remember. When Jesus gathered his disciples in the upper room, and after breaking the bread and giving thanks, he said, this is my body given for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood shed for you. That's what he's doing. He's saying, this is, this is the cost This is what Jesus went through. And because of that, we can step forward in freedom and love and gratitude. We don't have to live in guilt and shame and fear. We can respond in joy and love and gratitude because of the victory that Jesus made and brought in for each one of us. So here at Community Church, our communion table is open to all who put their faith and trust in Christ. Doesn't mean you have it all figured out. Doesn't mean you don't have doubts. Doesn't mean you've had a horrible week. But I want to invite you to take some time, examine your heart, and when you're ready, you're ready after I pray, you can come forward and receive. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have gone before us. You have fought the battle against sin and death. And at the cross, you made it possible for us to have a relationship with you. So we simply say thank you and invite your Holy Spirit to show us the next hard right thing to do and to trust you to do it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. When you're ready, the table is open. Come and receive.